Our scripture that can be found on the inside of the bulletin as we continue through the book of Luke. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The word of the Lord. Well, in my short jaunt of 45 years on this earth, I have discovered that there are some immutable laws. Not simply the laws of physics or the physical universe, such as gravi gravity and the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, but there are spiritual laws. And we see that there is a spiritual law in this passage. But before I get to it, I want to highlight what I think also is another critical uh, maxim which I have created of three very important laws that I feel every single member of Redeemer must know. Let's begin with number one. I call this the three rules of flannel. I see that none of you are wearing flannel and it disturbs me. So I want to explain to you the three rules of flannel. Number one, all flannel is good flannel. Okay, if you're wearing flannel, if it, you think it's ugly, you're wrong because all flannel is good flannel. Number two, plaid flannel is the best flannel. Okay, it's true. The Scots, they knew what they were talking about. Plaid flannel is in fact the best flannel. And number three, it is never too hot to wear flannel. Okay, so even though we are July 17th or 18th, you know, you're asking why am I not wearing a flannel rope? It's lined on the inside. It's like those L.L. Bean jeans, you know? I want to feel soft and comfortable when I'm up here. Three immutable laws that you must memorize and put to heart. Well, let's move on, shall we? This is the law that I want to touch on. It's simply this, that the most valuable things cost the most. The most valuable things cost the most. Let me give you a couple of examples. What I'm wearing on my wrist right now is a 1962 Rolex 1500 Oyster Perpetual date. It was given to my father who has passed away and now it has come to me. And it was given to my father as a college graduation present by my mother. And I'm sure my mother's sorority sisters were looking at her at the time going, you've got to be crazy. Even back then, Rolexes were not cheap. Why would you spend so much on something? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I only know the answer that 
54 years later, it's still ticking just like when it began. But we're not just talking about things, we're talking about people. The most valuable things cost the most. What about a marriage? Marriage costs the most in the amount of freedoms that you have to give up, right? Your life changes when you get married. You're not able to do this and this and this. There are restrictions. There are costs to be paid. You have to put someone ahead of yourself. You have to make them first in your life. Sometimes you feel like the cost is too great. But the reality is that a marriage in which you have paid the price shines brightly and gives the most value that you could ever ask for. At least it has for me. What about children? It's not the cost just to have them at the hospital, right? It's everything that comes along with that. It's the crying. It's the worrying. It's the caring. My life is not my own anymore. There's a cost to have them. And yet you wouldn't trade anything for them. At the end of the day, you would lay down your life gladly that they would be safe. Because the most valuable things cost the most. And if the most valuable things cost the most, then it makes sense that the ultimate thing must cost the ultimate price. Jesus talks about this passage. He brings this up, this, this commentary in this passage as he's heading to Jerusalem. And we see that great crowds are accompanying him. And Jesus turns to them. And this is one way to, dis, to dispel a crowd, I guess, to get rid of them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. See, this crowd is accompanying him in what they think is a victorious march to take over Jerusalem, to wrest control of Israel from the Romans, to issue in a victorious reign. And yet we know Jesus is going to die on a cross and his disciples will be scattered and persecuted. And so Jesus communicates to them. He wants them to understand what it really means to follow him. He wants them, and by extension wants us, to count the cost. In the United States, we have the misnomer that we can somehow have Jesus Christ and have everything else. But this passage quite clearly tells us that's not true. And so we must hear his words. We must choose our treasure and we must pay the price. The person of Jesus is the one thing that is worth everything. So count the cost. Choose your treasure. Pay the price. We're going to look at three particular points in this, in this sermon. Number one, what is the cost? What's he really asking for us? We want to know what it is that we are being called to pay. Number two, how do we calculate it? How do we sit down and measure? Is this really worth what uh, God is asking of us? How do we calculate this cost? Number two. Then finally, number three, what do we receive for such an investment of our life? What is the cost? How do we calculate it? And what is it we receive in the end? 
Well, let's begin with number one. What is the cost? So these crowds, as I've said, are accompanying him. And Jesus turns and says this statement about hating your own father and mother and wife and children. You know, Jesus said a lot of shocking things while he was, uh, while he was ministering to people. And this certainly seems like one of them. I mean, to actually hate your own father and mother, to hate your wife and children. But we can clearly see that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole when we look at the full text, the full breadth of his statements. Did Jesus not say to also love your neighbor as yourself? To love your enemies? Remember how he railed against uh, the Pharisees and religious people who refused to take care of their parents? Indeed, one of the last things he did while on the cross was make sure that his mother was going to be cared for. No, Jesus is not saying to hate them for themselves. He's saying implicitly to hate them in comparison to me. Jesus is ultimately saying that I must be more important to you than anyone else. And he's using hyperbole to show the, the difference between them. It's not a close one and two. But it's a one above all. Jesus must be more important to you than anyone else. So think about that for a second. Hating our father and mother. What would that would have meant to that culture? It's a culture of honor and shame. Where one had to take care of their father and mother. There were no retirement homes. There was no pensions. There was no... It was mandatory to take care of one's father and mother, to honor them. It was a patriarchal society. So imagine them hearing Jesus saying that in comparison to me, you must hate them. You must put them at such a low level. What about a wife, a husband? You know the marriage vows for richer for poor, sickness and health until death do us part. And yet Jesus is saying this sacred relationship is to be considered at such a low level that he would use this language compared to a relationship with me. Brothers and sisters, we all know that blood is thicker than water. Yet Jesus says it again. And what about children hating our own children compared to following him? What a visceral reaction we have when someone messes with our children. And yet Jesus says, saying they must, be, they must come second. A distant second compared to me. Even your very own life. Jesus was right in saying these things. Some of us have experienced perhaps some of the relational tension that comes when you make a decision to follow Jesus, right? I did in the beginning. My parents thought I was crazy. My girlfriend thought I was crazy. My friends thought I was crazy. It's okay to be a Christian, but don't take this whole thing too seriously, Carlos. It's part of the equation, right? But no, no, Jesus is saying it's so much more than that. And so Jesus honors us by laying out the cost, helping us to really understand what it means to follow him. That you cannot love any of them more than me and be my disciple. You know, there's actually three cannots in this passage. And this is the first one. You cannot love any of them more than me. You must hate your family. Number two, you must renounce your possessions. See, Jesus is saying that I must be more important to you than anyone else and I also must be more important to you than anything else. 
Verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All of my stuff. I love this watch because every time I look at it, I think of my father. And yet what Jesus is saying, you see this watch? It must be a distant second. A distant second. Anyone who's not willing to give everything he has. It says does not renounce all that he has. And you are quite clearly Jesus is not communicating, sell all that you have. Though he does in some instances. What he's saying is you must renounce it. It's claim on your life. You must have it, but with an open hand. It belongs to me now. Or you cannot be my disciple. See, it's not an option. We say that anybody can follow Jesus. But in a real sense of the word, that's not true. See, America is bought into the, philo- into the um, theology that Christianity is a philosophy. Christianity is not a philosophy. Christianity is a life commitment. And so that brings us to the third, cannot. Those who are not willing to bear their cross cannot be my disciple. Verse 27. Now the Romans were very, very bad people. They invented crucifixion. And, but it was more than simply being crucified. They actually made you carry your cross to be crucified. Can you imagine in our country if people made you lug your own uh, execution chair or carry your own needle into the room? to be killed? Why would the Romans do such a thing? It was such a public demonstration by purpose because what it was designed to do was to demonstrate to the world a forced submission. In other words, Rome was saying we own you and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Rome is king and if you don't This is what is going to happen to you. And everyone would see this public execution and they would know. But Jesus, using these words, says anyone who does not bear his own cross. Notice no one is being forced to carry his cross. Rather, it's a voluntary carrying. It's a decision. It's a volition. Who would carry their own cross? It's a decision that one makes to come under a new king. A new kingdom. To publicly bow their knee and say to the world, I belong to him. And indeed in Luke 9 it says, anyone who does not pick up his cross daily and follow me cannot be my disciple. You see my friends, Jesus is warning us This is not going to be easy. Come after me is a road of sacrifice. Is not Jesus heading to Jerusalem where he will die on the cross? Jesus said that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So to follow the world, follow Christ is to be at odds with the world. To follow Christ is to be at odds with our fallen nature that continues to want the ways of the world. 
Jesus is calling us to a standard that many of us will shy away from. I remember in college when my wife and I had the DTR. For some of you that don't know those hip initials, that's define the relationship. It's outside her apartment. She sort of lobbed in the question, how are we doing? Where are we going? And I did the standard uh, male college student. This is fun. We're having a great time with this, right? Who knows where it's going to go? C'est la vie. Que sera, sera. Well, that didn't sit so well with my lovely wife. See, she really wanted to know, who are you to me and who am I to you? And so Jesus, in this passage, is asking us to define the relationship. See, there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. There's a difference between knowing about His grace and experiencing it. And Jesus wants us to understand that we can't experience His benefits. We can't experience Him in all His fullness until we pay the price for Him. See, Christianity is like a restaurant. Christianity is like a cafeteria. Restaurant, you go, you sit down, you eat, and then you pay the bill. Christianity is like a cafeteria. Because you go, you choose, you pay, and then you eat. You may have thought the price of Christianity was coming to church. Maybe tithing. Maybe cleaning up my act. Maybe living a little bit better than everyone else. But you see, ultimately, Christianity is a decision of the heart that manifests itself in your life from the inside out. It's you saying to Him, I choose you. And so if you want all of Christ, you must give all of you. You must renounce your relationships. My wife, my children, my mother, my father, they're yours. You are first on the pyramid of my relationships. You must renounce your resources. My home, my car, my dreams, my job. It all belongs to you. Whatever you want me to do, we sign it over. We say yes to the answer before we even really know the question of what he wants us to do. We renew our vows day by day by day. We give all to Him here that we may leave with Him to there. Because the person of Jesus is the one thing that's worth everything. And the ultimate thing must cost the ultimate price. This brings me to my second point. Counting the cost. Calculating, is this really worth it in the end? You know that there are more deaths in people running a half marathon than a marathon? Of course you know that. How <laughs> silly of me. I, I, you know that, of course. I was talking with a person who was a, uh, a trauma doctor. So there are more deaths in half marathon. Now that doesn't make sense. A half marathon is only half the distance of a marathon. 13 miles, right? 
Here's the difference. Some people are foolish enough to think that without training, they can go out and run a half marathon and make it. Nobody is dumb enough, except for myself, to think that you can go out and run a marathon without training and still make it. And so people go out to the rock and roll marath half marathon in September. It's a hot day and lives are lost. See, they're treating the half marathon like a sprint. And Jesus knows with this crowd, there's an excitement to the numbers. There's an electricity to his words because they're true. Billy Graham says, Billy Graham said that he figured only about 25% of people that made commitments to Christ at one of his crusades continued on in the faith. And the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association has actually found out that it's far less than that. What's going on? They went out to run a half marathon. And so Jesus is saying, count the cost. Count the cost. For which of you, verse 28, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? No, if you've ever built a house, put an addition on. But imagine if you get excited about something, about building something, and you immediately get in the car and drive to Lowe's and start shoving stuff in the back of your car. You drive to the first builder, whoever's on the side of the road, and you say, here's my guy, I've got a job for you. Whatever it takes. Those are famous last words, by the way. I have loved and lost in this equation. I've made just about every mistake in the Bible, by the way. I think that's why I'm qualified to talk to you about these things. No, you don't do that. Because you understand that the process is complicated. It's lengthy. It's not just a decision of my heart. It requires my mind. It ultimately requires my will. There's a principle that I use. It's called Greenwald's Principle. One minute of planning saves four of execution. One minute of planning saves four of execution. Greenwald, I think he was the president of DuPont. And I don't know about you, but sometimes this is so frustrating because you're ready to start. You're ready to get going with what needs to happen. But in the back of your mind, there's a small voice saying, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're signing up for. You better take a look and figure this out. And so you sit down with your pen and your paper and your checkbook and you start looking at what it is that you want to build. There's a shrewdness to it. See, because if you don't, here's what happens. Verse 29, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Our work will be evaluated. Others will be able to see. When was the last time you went to Cape Charles or down to the Outer Banks and you see every now and then this husk of a building sitting up on a, on a bluff somewhere. What happened? Why aren't they finishing that? Some foolish builder who started to build. People laugh and go, how could he have thought that? 
Why didn't he sit down and think? And yet we often plan our lives that way, don't we? Jesus is saying, don't do that with me. He goes on, verse 31, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate where he, whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who has 20? Notice the first illustration is voluntary. person decides they want to build a tower. The second one's compulsory. We don't know who went to war with who. We just know that it's inevitable. It's going to happen. See, you make a mistake with the first one, it's going to cost you your reputation. You make a mistake with the second one, it's going to cost you your life. And the lives of 10,000 others. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. See, Jesus is saying to us, this is not an optional discussion, friends. This is a life and death issue. It's imminent. See the danger. You know, where is death? It's right out there, just on the edge of life. Slowly looking to take ground. Inexorably coming closer. We're all terminal in the end. We all have to deal with the fact that we're not immortal. We can stick our head in the sand. Or we can look and see what's going on around us. See, Jesus is saying with the first illustration, you have to build a life. Life is like a building, isn't it? We're building, we're gathering materials. We're using stones, we're building something. What will we show in the end? Jesus is saying, if I'm not the foundation of your life, in the end it will all fall with a great crash. There will be nothing left. But if you put your hope and confidence in me, I will be like the land when the storm came and the winds rose. The winds came and the waters. And yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock and not on the sand. The army is coming. You know, I get to, in my unique position as a pastor, I get to see people's lives from the cradle to the grave. I baptize them, I marry them, and I bury them. I'm there when they're born, and I'm there when they die. And I have seen innumerable examples of disaster and victory. Storms will rise in this life. If they haven't yet in your life, give it time. They will come. And our life will be tested. Will it be able to stand through the night? Or will it fall with a great crash? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his very soul? Life will end. Will we go with confidence and hope and faith? A sense of rightness and excitement for the future? Or fear and questions and doubts? I want to give you two new laws to take away. One being that the most valuable things cost the most. Two, this is what failure is. 
Failure is being successful at everything that does not matter. Because Jesus is saying you can stick your head in the sand. You can choose the world. You can gain it all. But if you don't have me, in the end you have nothing. The second is this. The true wealth is everything that money cannot buy and death cannot take away. There's only one thing worth all of our life. There's only one thing, one answer to our question. What is life about? Who am I? What is the future? The ultimate thing is not a thing. It's a person. And the ultimate thing must cost the ultimate price. This brings me to my final point, what you receive. Jesus ends with this thought, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Everybody would laugh at this statement. And here's why. Salt cannot become unsalty. Salt is a chemical compound, sodium chloride. It's either salt or it's not. Make sense? It's either salt or it's not. It's one or the other. So what does it mean in terms of it's lost its taste? It's mean ultimately that it has become, there's been so much impurities added to the solution that you can no longer taste the salt. The salt has been lost, if you will, in a sea of otherness. What do you get if you choose to pay all to receive Christ? You receive Him. And in receiving Him, you receive yourself. Who I was made to be. As St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. How can we be ourselves, know ourselves, live the life that we're intended to live if it is not with him as our life? Jesus is saying, if you choose me, you receive me and you in me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I am the life. And I will protect you from this world. Jesus paid the ultimate price that we might have the ultimate Savior. His bond in which He draws us to Himself is not compulsion, but love. It's an invitation, a proposal. Give up everything. It has its clutches on your heart but ultimately cannot give life that you might gain me and do it now because the army is coming and you have to build a life and the most precious thing in the world is not money but it's time because when you spend it you can't get it back the person of Jesus is the one thing that's worth everything and the ultimate thing must cost you the ultimate price. So sit down with your pen and your paper in your life. With shrewdness, 
with your heart, but with your mind and your will. And decide. You pay the price up front for him who paid the price up front for you. And when you get him, you get life. And ultimately, you find yourself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are gracious enough to define the relationship. Lord, you want nothing less than all of us. And 99% of us won't do. So as best as we know, we give our lives and our hearts to you. You have the very words of life. Where else can we go? We renounce everything that we might have you. Take our possessions, our relationships, reorder them around you, Lord. As long as we have you, we have what we came looking for. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.